Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is Sirius XM Progress. Welcome to it. I'm John Fugelsang. I am honored, proud, and chuffed to be your guide for Progress After Dark. For the next uh, three hours, we're going to come at you with some really great guests. And of course, our favorite guest is always you. We are at 866-997-4748, 866-997-GRIT. We have a lot of great fun coming up later on tonight. Morris Pearl is going to be with us. He is um, one of the guys from Patriotic Millionaires, who I love very much. They do some really, really great awareness on how, uh, hey, we're rich people who think we need to pay more in taxes. He's going to be with us to comment about Silicon Valley Bank and what is a bailout and what's not. And then Nathan Robinson is going to join us, who I'm really excited to have. He's never done the show before. Uh, he's one of the smartest guys who writes about politics, in my opinion opinion. He's amazingly good at debating. He doesn't do a lot of debates, but I've learned a lot about debating from this guy over the years. He um, is the editor of Current Affairs, but he's written for the Washington Post and the New York Times. He's a democratic socialist, and he has a new book out that I'm just going to tell everyone who considers themselves to be progressive or liberal or moderate or or, or democrat or, or anti-evil. The book is called Responding to the Right. Brief replies to 25 conservative arguments, and it gives a great explanation on how every conservative argument you hear can easily be debunked. Are taxes theft? Is abortion murder? Regulation kills jobs? There's no such thing as white privilege? He will show you precisely, using logic and facts, why every one of these arguments is bupkis. And what's even better, he's really good at debating in a smart way. So we got a packed one tonight, guys. Chris Hauselt is our executive producer. He is running this thing from the South Carolina Bureau, the uh, wonderful Thea Harper, our producer in Brooklyn. I come to you from Manhattan. I think I think we're all set, right? We got everything in order? Yeah? Okay. Uh, let's, let's do a show. Happy, happy St. Patrick's Day. A very special day when American men celebrate Irish heritage by wearing Scottish kilts that were made in China to honor a saint who's actually British. But it's it's a beautiful day here. I don't know if you ever got to be in Manhattan the uh, the same day as St. Patrick's Day, but boy, let me tell you, it, it's, it's, it's when we celebrate the man who drove the drunken schmucks into Manhattan. See, little known fact, St. Patrick is the patron saint of uh, drunk young couples in their 20s who are scream fighting outside bars on my block. 
all night long. The city's kind of crazy on St. Patrick's Day. New Yorkers get into it. I mean, not as much as Chicago. We don't go painting our river weird colors. Guys, really? Huh? But uh, let's just say I had to go around Manhattan today. It's my wife's birthday over the weekend, and I had to go buy some birthday presents in Midtown Manhattan. Oh, my God. Okay, first off, it was nothing out there today but cops. Uh, you've never seen so many cops, and half of them are wearing skirts. I don't know. what it's, I, I guess it's kilts. I guess they identify as Irish men who wear Scottish kilts. I don't know, but a lot of, lot of bare-legged cops walking around in a, a, attractive skirts all over the place. And I had to go to the Plaza Hotel at one point, or as I call it, the Russian Embassy. That's a completely different matter. But, um, you know, what can you say about St. Patrick's Day? Corned beef, $12. Fighting Irish t-shirt, $20. 14-ounce of Guinness, $9. Transforming yourself into a cultural cliche, priceless. The best part for me about St. Patrick's Day, or as we call it here, Amateur Hour, um, is the next day when we see all these tri-state guys who came in from the outer boroughs and Jersey and Staten Island and Long Island and, and came to New York to selflessly donate their vomit and urine to our sidewalks. Really, you know what? It's one thing to be in New York City for St. Patrick's Day. You, you want to walk around New York City early in the morning after St. Patrick's Day to know just how much we take. You're tired, you're poor. And I'll, I'll leave you with this thought. Um, alcohol. 75,000 deaths per year. Cannabis, zero deaths per year. Maybe, just maybe, next year, St. Patrick's Day should go green. Now, um, before I get to the main thing about tonight, it's hard, folks, because I don't want to talk about Donald Trump anymore. My wife actually had the best line about Donald Trump earlier, about an hour ago, which I'll share at the end. But before I... Before I get to what's going on with Donald Trump, because the media is happy to talk about Donald Trump. They don't want to tell you what's really going on with Donald Trump. You know what I'm saying? He's good for ratings. We get it. But you have to understand you need to get ready for the victimhood. And everything he does is a misdirect. But before I, I get to that, I, I just want to uh, take a moment to honor a friend of this show uh, who was someone I was delighted to have um, both on the phone and in person. And that is Lance Reddick. A terrific actor. He's he's best known for playing Cedric Daniels on The Wire on HBO, um, or or for his role in the John Wick movies. Um, he has died today. Uh, he was only sixty years old, and it would take me all day to go through all of his credits. I mean, uh, Lost, Fringe, Bosch, and my favorite performance of his was on Oz. He played a detective named Mobay, who was sent undercover into the prison to try to help bust the drug ring, and along the way. He becomes addicted to heroin while an undercover informant in prison. It was a really great role, and he's a great, great actor. He was found this morning in his home in Studio City. We don't know how he died. He was only 60 years old. He just had a video up the other day on Twitter that show he's playing with his dogs, and he looked really healthy. He's been doing a lot of press because he's in the fourth John Wick movie, which is coming out. God, he was here when the last John Wick movie came out. Keanu Reeves and John Wick director Chad Stahelski said, We are deeply saddened and heartbroken at the loss of our beloved friend and colleague, Lance Reddick. He was the consummate professional and a joy to work with. Lance began his career in the 90s. He like had appearances on The Nanny, 
Uh, he was his first movie was What the Deaf Man Heard in 1997, and he was in Great Expectations. He was in The Siege with Bruce Willis, and then he got a recurring role on HBO's The Corner in 2000. And it seems like after that, he just got a role on every great HBO series. The Corner led to Oz, led to The Wire, which made him very famous, and he played a lot of cops. Um, he was on every episode of The Wire. He was on Law & Order. He was in CSI Miami. Um, a lot of people know him for his role playing the concierge in John Wick's uh, Continental Hotel. That new movie is going to hit theaters next week. He was supposed to attend the premiere in New York. He didn't say why he didn't make it. He has two kids and a wife, and um, I send my love to them. Just God bless him. Just a, a terrific actor. And, and the thing about Lance Reddick, you know, I recommend you guys uh, go on YouTube and, and watch some of his appearances, like when he would sit in with the Young Turks and talk politics. He came on our show, and we're going to play our last interview with him next week sometime, I hope. But we would talk politics, and if you followed him on social media, you knew that he was someone who took the capital of his fame and used it to fight for the less fortunate. Lance Reddick had incredible humanity. Like, like, go read his Twitter following. Go, go, read, his, go read his tweets. Go... Go watch his interviews with the Young Turks or anything he did about politics. He cared about people. He cared about humanity. And he, he cared about people he will never meet. And that empathy, that love, that humanity, I, I always said it's what made him a great actor. And it's what made him a great activist. He's someone whose inner beauty is such that you can't separate his liberal politics from the truth in his acting. And... um Boy, I was so proud to have him as a guest on the show. I was so proud to, to know him and, uh, and to be um, on friendly terms with him. He's a real gentleman. God bless Lance Reddick. Now, I don't want to talk about Trump, but, you know, we're all waiting for the indictment fairy to show up. That's really it. I was on Stephanie Miller this morning, and I had to finally tease them. I'm like, Rudolph promised the indictment fairy would be here before Christmas. We know that the Manhattan DA's office has asked for a meeting with law enforcement ahead of this potential indictment. And they're going to discuss logistics for some time next week, which means they think the first indictment of a former U.S. president could happen in the next seven days. So Donald Trump will be attacking the Manhattan DA's office ferociously. And Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg is a very interesting guy. He's not like the last couple of New York DAs we've had. Robert Morgenthau, he was the DA when I was a little kid, and he was still the DA when I was like a, a, a loser old grown-up. He was there for almost 40 years. And then we just had Cy Vance, who's the son of Jimmy Carter's, you know, uh, Secretary of State, Cyrus Vance. Alvin Bragg's a guy who was born in Harlem. He's a guy who's been stopped by the police for doing nothing. He's been stopped and frisked by the police for doing nothing. This is the guy who's in charge of law enforcement now. And Donald Trump will be attacking him so ferociously over these possible charges. And again, this is linked to his effort to pay hush money to actor Stormy Daniels. Trump's campaign said Americans will not tolerate radical left Democrats turning our justice system into an injustice system. Now, guys, we, we all hoped that Trump would go away, but you got to get ready. You got to get ready for the victimhood. Get ready for the fundraising because he will be indicted. And he will not care. He will use the indictment to raise money off the cult. And he will use the indictment to beat up Ron DeSantis. So get ready for the fundraising. Get ready for the scorched earth campaigns against Alvin Bragg and Ron DeSantis. And get ready for the distractions and the misdirects. Because they're going to be coming. Donald Trump has just posted on Facebook for the first time 
since January 6, 2021. He wrote today on the post, I'm back. Sorry to keep you waiting. Complicated business. Why is he back on Facebook? Because Facebook is the best fundraising tool he's ever had, and he is really running for president in 2024. People are starting to line up to challenge him. As we said earlier this week, don't trust any media that gives you puffy stories on Nikki Haley or Mike Pompeo or Mike Pence. They are wasting your time. There is Trump and there is not Trump. And Ron DeSantis is the only plausible not Trump right now. Trump's Facebook has been restored. His Instagram has been restored. They were banned for two years after the terrorist attack at our Capitol. And last month, Meta brought them back because Donald Trump is going to make Meta a lot of money over the next year. And they've just fired 20,000 people. His posts on January 6, 2021 were filled with lies and an attack on Mike Pence. And then when he knew he was in trouble, he did a post calling on his writers to be peaceful. Twitter was his favorite way of messaging, but Facebook and Instagram were how he made the money. He's got 34 million on Facebook. He's got 23 million on Instagram and he's running ads all over the place. And they're very excited for him to get back on Facebook because, again, Donald Trump's going to be taking all of his money from right-wing white people, hard-working people. The big-money Republican donors are not going to give to Donald Trump. He's going to have to take all of his money, mostly all of his money, from non-millionaires here and very wealthy people overseas. And this is all happening as they're getting ready for criminal charges to come against him. He is going to use any indictment to raise money. That is the strategy. They've been planning a response that includes how to amplify their messaging using social media. So here's a video posted to his Truth Social account. What's that, Johnny? We'll get to that in a second. Here's Donald Trump waxing poetic on a world on the verge of nuclear war. And I just want to say, I wish you could see this clip. I encourage you at some point in your weekend to try to just see a clip of Donald Trump's unhinged video, because first off, his teleprompter reading has never been more medicated. And secondly, this guy has tanned himself out of the known color spectrum. Give a listen. We have never been closer to World War Three than we are today under Joe Biden. A global conflict between nuclear armed powers would mean death and destruction on a scale Unmatched in human history, it would be nuclear Armageddon. We're a dystopian hellscape filled with awful woke people, and we're the greatest country in the history of the world. So Donald Trump has made up his own social media platform, Truth Social. And we've all been wondering, why is he staying there? Why is he still on Truth Social? His Twitter's been reactivated for months since Muscovite turned it back on. Now his Facebook is back on. Why, why, why is he just on Truth Social? Well, we found out this week. Truth Social was about to go bankrupt, and they received $8 million in loans from unknown people, no documentation, no written loan agreements, and it was sent to them by an offshore bank that is managed by a relative of a Vladimir Putin insider. Now, back in 1990, Donald Trump had another business that was failing. It was called the Trump Castle It was a casino in Atlantic City. I know, right? He's the guy who can't run casinos in Atlantic City. Hey, the last Republican president was the guy who couldn't find oil in Texas. They don't run good businessmen. Have you noticed this? Anyway, um, Trump Castle was a late 80s monstrosity for Trump, but it was failing. And so this is a very famous story. In 1990, his dad bailed out the hotel. And you know how his dad did it? His dad had an associate walk into the casino with, I believe it was $5 million in a suitcase. And the associate bought $5 million worth of casino chips and then left the building. 
they laundered the money tax-free. He gave his son tax-free $5 million to bail out his failing business. That's what happened here. <laughs> the question is, who's his daddy now? And again, I want to play one more clip. Here's Donald Trump, and you got to watch this video. I mean, my God, I don't even know what color his face is. And he looks like he's in a minstrel show. Here he is believing the greatest threat to America right now in the age of climate change and income inequality and mass shootings is, you guessed it, woke Democrats. But the greatest threat to Western civilization today is not Russia. It's probably, more than anything else, ourselves and some of the horrible USA-hating people that represent us. It's the abolition of our national borders. It's the failure to police our own cities. It's the destruction of the rule of law from within. It's the collapse of the nuclear family and what? Fertility rates like nobody can believe is happening. It's the Marxists who would have us become a godless nation worshiping at the altar of race and gender and environment. And it's the globalist class that has made us totally dependent on China and other foreign countries that basically hate us. <laughs> Donald Trump accusing someone else of being dependent on China. That I don't even know what the funniest globalists. You know what globalists mean, right? That's the little anti-Semitic winky wink. Um, my favorite line of all of that is fertility rates like no one can believe is happening. After Elon Musk bought Twitter and began to ruin it. And let me just say, now that we've lost both David Crosby and Lance Reddick, Twitter is just, it just sucks. <laughs> Twitter is a place you go to have 10-year-old accounts or two-month-old accounts that have 20 followers attack you because you don't hate trans people and they call you a, uh, a, a woke groomer. That's, that's where you go for Twitter. But Musk restored Trump's account there months ago. He still has 87 million followers, but he hasn't posted on Twitter since January 8th of 2021 because he's trying, of course, to launder money through his other site. YouTube said they were restoring Trump's account, so he's uploading new videos. They said, starting today, the Donald J. Trump channel is no longer restricted and can upload new content. We carefully evaluated the continued risk of real-world violence while balancing the chance for voters, blah, 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 fucking blah. So you're going to hear so much about Donald Trump is back on Facebook, he's back on YouTube, he's back on Instagram. Why? Because it's the misdirect. He's going to flood the zone with news to distract from bad news. And you should be expecting a lot of bad news. He is most likely going to be indicted, and it could be next week. There's a brand new scandal about him laundering Russian money through his failing shitty business, just like his daddy did 33 years ago. And now we find out the Trump White House failed to properly document more than 100 gifts valued at more than a quarter million dollars. Think about that. 100 gifts that were valued at more than a quarter million dollars, including about $48,000 from Saudi Arabia that were given to Donald Trump and his wife and his horrible son-in-law and his horrible daughter. These people are criminals, and the law is clear. If gifts are given to a president or a first lady by a foreign government or a government official, they have to be reported. They're the property of the United States. Republicans love to go after Democrats for this. It is illegal for a president to accept a gift valued at more than $20, even if he has a hotel down the block from the White House and foreign dignitaries just pour money into it. But any physical gift beyond 20 bucks can only be kept by a president with congressional approval. So what does it mean? It means no one's going to care about his corruption, and the mainstream media will be talking all about the return to social media. 
not about his crimes. And so here's the thing. I think take away from this and he's destroying Ron DeSantis. I mean, it's happening before my eyes. Donald Trump has turned Ron DeSantis into Rick Perry. Ron DeSantis has flipped from supporting U.S. allies to now being pro-Putin. Ron DeSantis is he is he is quoting so many Vladimir Putin talking points. I, I'm waiting for the spray tan and the fake blonde dye job. I mean, and he's all doing it chasing MAGA. Ron DeSantis is chasing MAGA so hard he could run CNN. But Trump is going to be Trump. He is going to take foreign money. He's going to smear DeSantis and he's going to smear law enforcement. And that clip you heard a few minutes ago, I was watching that about half an hour ago before the show and getting ready. And my wife's in the room and I played it for her. And all she said was, oh, God, him. It's boring. I find him boring. And I was like, you know what? You and everybody else. The thing about Donald Trump is this. Uh, he's great for ratings. He's not great for votes. And he's trying his best to give the Republicans their third loss of the U.S. popular vote in a row. No man's done it before. Trump alone can achieve it. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Right now, I'm so pleased to welcome Morris Pearl to the show. I've been a fan of Morris Pearl for a while. We've been trying to connect the dots here all week on Silicon Valley Bank and talk about what is a bailout, what's not a bailout. And I've been very cautiously optimistic that we're looking at shareholders losing a lot of money on this. But the little guys, the depositors, seem to be okay. Is it too soon to hope that the White House did this right? And really, there's been so many finger pointing. Um, what did cause it? It's actually a confluence of events. And I'm so really pleased to have the chair of Patriotic Millionaires with us. Now, that's a group of hundreds of high net worth Americans who are committed to making all Americans, including themselves, better off by building a more prosperous, stable and inclusive nation. I love the work that Patriotic Millionaires does because they use logic and facts to shame the powerful into being part of a more decent society. Mr. Pearl was previously managing director at BlackRock, one of the largest investment firms in the world. He is one of the nation's leading experts on bank bailouts. What a pleasure to welcome Morris Pearl of Patriotic Millionaires to SiriusXM. Great to be on your show, John. Thank you. 
Thank you so much. So, I mean, am I am I misplacing my hope? Did did Joe Biden do this right? It really seems like when the White House says it wasn't a bailout. I mean, it wasn't for the powerful guys, but the little guys. And I'm not saying every tech firm is the little guys, but the depositors were covered. Yeah, I mean, they're not bailing out the bank. They're not bailing out the shareholders. They're not bailing out the investors. And the reason they're bailing out the depositors is because all of those firms, including a bunch of hospitals, a bunch of small businesses in the Midwest, business all over the country, had payrolls due on Wednesday morning. Mm -hmm. And they were going to have to lay off people because they can't have people working for you if you're not paying them. And that's what they were afraid of is one, all of these businesses having to lay off people on Monday and Tuesday because they don't have money for Wednesday's payroll. And secondly, everyone getting the idea that, oh, we have to withdraw, put all of our money into the big four and that we'd be left with just four big banks in the country. And I don't think the White House wanted that either. Exactly. My wife works in a tech company, and I can tell you, sir, a week ago today, uh, her entire life was all focused around her company trying to get the money out in time. But there are so many reasons why it happened. And I, I do want to talk about what brought us here and, and, and how we got more or less how we got to this point. I mean, after 2008, I guess we have to begin it there. Um, after the very poor regulation of financial institutions, we got the Dodd-Frank laws, and it took 10 years for Republicans and 17 Democrats to put the kibosh on some of those regulations. Very sadly, I mean, really, they decided to change the definition of systemically important institution from from 50 billion all the way to 250 billion. Mm -hmm. And that meant this bank, which I think we'd all agree right now, was systemically important. The reason the depositors had to be bailed out was because of the systemic importance of the money in the bank. And I think we'd all agree that it was systemically important, but it didn't meet the definition that those Republicans plus the 17 Democrats put into the law that Trump signed in 2018. That's it. I mean, they had just reached 50 billion in assets uh, in 2018, hadn't they? Like, they were really hard in joining the lobbying to raise the threshold to get around any regulations. Yeah. And and they'd gotten up to 212, I think, was the number, um, you know, some, you know, sometime a few weeks ago. Yeah. And it's just sad. And like the bank, I mean, my impression is that whoever was running the bank either failed asset liability management 101 mm-hmm. or maybe skipped the class or they just deliberately decided let's make a big bet and gamble it and if we win we're going to make a huge profit and get lots of money for ourselves and our executives and our shareholders and if we lose well we'll have to find new jobs but it'll be the fdic's problem to sort out the mess exactly Um, you know i'm almost hoping that they were incompetent rather than evil but i don't know i don't read people's minds But this is how it is time and time again, whether it's in financial regulations or environmental. We see them spend the money to have the lobbyists get rid of the regulation. And then when there's a bank crash and a calamity of that sort or when there's an environmental disaster, that's what big government getting off businesses backs tends to look like these kind of disasters. It's so preventable, isn't it? It's true. I mean, the bankers will come in. I've seen them walk in the room and say, well, obviously, if you don't want us to lose money, the best way to avoid losing money is for you to help us make our profits higher. (laughs) And 
suppose in some sense that's true, but they're supposed to be, they're providing a service that's a necessity for so many Americans. But you, you, it's hard to be an American today without having some kind of checking account to have yeah. a bank. You, you mm-hmm. can't use Uber. You can't use Amazon. There's a lot of things you can't do if you don't have a, a bank account. And it's as much a necessity as clean water and electricity. Uh-huh. And, you know, a landline telephone was, you know, when I was a kid. And we need the same kind of regulation, the same way the electric company is not allowed to do something that might risk having a huge blackout, or at least they're not supposed to. Mm-hmm. We have a public utilities commission to look after them. We need a bank utility commission to look after banks or something like that. It, it's and, so true. Yeah, this basically these guys, they took in huge amounts of deposits. That's their job. They're supposed to do that. But instead of making short-term loans to businesses that get rolled over every year, they bought 30-year mortgages. That's and they it. were given to Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, so mm-hmm. no credit risk, but an enormous interest rate risk. Those mortgages in you know the height of 2021 were getting repaid. People were paying off their mortgages early, 30% per year. You know, per annum at the height. Now it's four percent. So things that used to be like a two or a three or a four year mortgage are now like a twenty year mortgage. But and that's went, the scam. That that yeah. That that that's I mean, that's the whole racket. It appeared conservative on the surface, but it was really all about cashing in. And because the mortgages they invested in were so long term, when the bill came due, they didn't have the liquidity on hand. It was all tied up in these long mortgages. And it seems like that greed play that would have been so beautiful for the executives if it had worked, doomed the entire enterprise. Yeah. If when they they tried to sell some mortgages, they were down, I don't know, 10 percent, maybe even more. I'm not sure exactly which mortgage they had. You know, they couldn't sell them. And they I guess it was a week ago today. They they figured out they did not have enough value to pay off the depositors. I'm so, guessing you of all people weren't surprised to learn that they were paying off all the annual bonuses that morning. No, not surprised. I mean, it was just <laughs> I can't believe someone would do that and think, you know, like, how do you look your your kids, you know, and tell them that you're an honest person? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just, you know, like, you know, like what Warren Buffett said, you have to do everything as if you're assuming that it's going to be written about in the paper the next day. Yeah. Yeah. But but, you know, but it's the same thing we keep hearing. It's jobs, jobs, jobs. I mean, back in 2018, when they when they killed Dodd-Frank, they called it the Economic Growth Regulatory Relief and Consumer Protection Act. When the Republicans and their 17 Democratic senator friends helped them do it, um, there's a new narrative now saying that that actually had no impact on this meltdown. I'm sure you've heard it and I've heard it on MSNBC and Fox News. There's voices coming out saying that, oh, no, it's not any, it's not at all about the repeal of Dodd-Frank. That didn't actually cause this. But I mean, it's hard to imagine if they hadn't done it. Regulators would have noticed a year ago that the bank was engaging in, in such unsafe behavior. Well, the bank, the, the what they mandated back in the Dodd-Frank thing is what we call stress tests. Yeah. And kind of like if the doctor has you run on a treadmill and checks how your heart is doing while you're running on the treadmill, the idea is they tell the bank, well, run a scenario when rates go up, when rates go down, when people prepay the mortgages a lot, when people don't prepay the mortgages, when there's a snowstorm and you have to close the branches, run all these different scenarios and then tell us what will happen in all these different scenarios. Uh-huh. You, presumably, <laughs> you won't have to close the bank. <laughs> and they did that. I mean, it, 
I mean, I tell me, I've helped bankers do this back in the day, yeah. and it would have been pretty obvious to any anyone doing this that they would have lost a huge amount of money if interest rates went up by three percent. You know, they're actually going up by more than three percent. Should, should we like, view it as a should we view it as a coincidence that the the bank's risk assessment job was vacant for a big chunk of last year? I hope not. If that was just a coincidence, then that means they're even more incompetent than I thought. I mean, it's um, just, yeah. You know, just, they, they, ahead, please. they were just taking too much risk and they either didn't know or didn't care. And both of those are extremely serious, you know, allegations. How, and how you... probably a good thing that they're now you know, no longer working in the banking industry and probably never uh, will again. How do you feel the White House handled this? Um, they're certainly pushing that this cements Joe Biden's working class bona fides, but it does seem that he was very, very much prioritizing people getting their, their salaries. I think so. That was certainly what I was hearing on calls Saturday night, you know, last Saturday, you know, six days ago. Um all kinds of people, like boards of directors, members of corporations saying, you know, I could be personally liable for violating the minimum wage laws if I employ people Monday morning knowing I can't pay them. Yeah. And that was the argument from these executives. Um, that plus the fact that, you know, a thousand other banks people want to withdraw their money from and mm -hmm. only leave us with just four. Um, I think those are the two things that the... Um, well, the administration, you know, the, whoever made the decision was concerned about the secretary and the president. You know, I heard you talking about how uh, Biden is getting complaints from bill collectors saying that if there's student loan forgiveness, they'd be out of a job. Isn't that the kind well, of economic landscape that smart capitalism is supposed to be looking for, where these people can go out and start buying houses? I mean, they went to the lawsuit. I mean, they went to the Supreme Court. That's basically their argument is they have to tell the Supreme Court that we will be injured by this loan forgiveness plan. And who will actually be injured by the loan forgiveness plan? People who make it who people who are harassing the students to get them to pay their oh. bills, lose their jobs. Yeah. And so and that's the essence of their argument. And it's just sad. I mean, it's like it's I like saying the cure for cancer will put chemotherapy out of business, right? I mean, chemotherapists will lose their livelihood if we cure cancer. It's it's insane. Um, it's true, but yes, but I'd still rather cure cancer, and I'd still rather forgive <laughs> uh, student loans. And yes, those people have to find a new job, and you know that's yeah. life. Oh well, I'm sorry. You, the world's better. Um, can I can I yeah. say how much I've appreciated the work? of patriotic millionaires there's many de major democratic donors but I, I i don't see a lot of them going out and saying yes we should be taxed more and and you know for our listeners who aren't familiar with the organization i'd love to ask you how your involvement came to be and what the mission of patriotic millionaires is because you guys raise a lot of awareness of a lot of really smart economics and smart morality thank you john that that's important um you can anybody can take a look at patrioticmillionaires.org uh, patrioticmillionaires.org is our website that you know tells about who we are and what we do and stuff like that. But basically, we have a group of a few hundred wealthy business people and investors. Ten years ago, in 20, um, 2010, we sent a letter to the president, then President Obama, telling him to let the 2001 tax cuts for the rich expire. Um, signed the Patriotic Millionaires. Tax us. We are rich. 
And then he thought we were kind of a dork for attacking from the left, or at least that's what mm-hmm. Valerie Tarasenko thought. But they realized <laughs> we were actually helping them. We were giving them political space to do what they wanted to do. So on his tax day address, we talked about the Buffett rule. He invited a bunch of our members to stand with him on the podium when he mm-hmm. when he explained the Buffett rule, that it's not right that these rich guys, meaning our patriotic millionaires, pay lower tax rates than their assistants who are standing with them. And that's our basic premise, is that it's not right that rich people like us have lower tax rates than people who work for a living and people who have money deducted from their paycheck every single week. And that's part of the thing that's causing people to just give up and think the system is rigged because it is. That's it. Yeah. That's what leads to, you know, civil unrest eventually. And I don't want that. <laughs> Donald Trump admitted that in the early part of his 2015 presidential campaign. And, and you're exactly right. But, boy, it's a special kind of patriotism to be that wealthy and say it makes sense to have progressive taxation. I mean, I compare what you do to, like, you know, comedians who were against Donald Trump. I mean, we should be for Donald Trump. He's great for comedy. But, no, we love our country too much to want to have him around. Uh, you know, I just I, I need to ask. Go ahead. It should be everybody. Back yeah. in World War II, there were music videos being made about how it's patriotic to pay taxes. That's you know, it. Rockefeller paid for this airplane, and I did too, the singer said. And pay, paying your taxes is a patriotic thing to do. Donald Trump is wrong when he says only stupid people pay taxes. Patriotic I mean, it's why Eisenhower was uh, as effective as he was, and it is what built the American middle class. But as you know, um, a lot of right-wing politicians in all cultures tend to forget that. We're witnessing now Republicans, and as of this week, uh, French President Macron wanting to raise retirement age to 70. And of course, here in this country, black men generally on the average live to be 68. They want to raise their retirement age to 70 because they'd rather do that than tax people who could pay a lot more a little more yeah i mean we basically should be paying more taxes people who have higher income we should not be asking people who are trying to retire on the social security which is hard enough anyway to get less benefits i mean we have to make a choice either we're going to get more money either we're going to get more money from the rich people or we're going to get more money from the poor people by sending them less benefits and less health care and less pensions and whatever. And our society has to make a choice. And personally, I'd rather have the choice of taking some of the money from the rich people because I don't want to live in a country with millions of people that are, you know, can't don't have enough money to live on. That's exactly. not the kind of country I signed up for, you know, <laughs> raising my children and my granddaughter. I want to live in a country with lots of people who can pay their bills every month, who can pay their iPhone bills and pay their rent and do all those things, because that's the kind of country where I can make money. Exactly right. A living wage workforce that can afford to buy shit is good for capitalism. Uh, Morris Pearl, it is a pleasure to have you on our show for the first time. Chair of Patriotic Millionaires and former managing director at BlackRock. What is the best way for our listeners to keep up with your work, sir? patrioticmillionaires.org. Take a look at our website at patrioticmillionaires.org and sign up and follow our information. And we look forward to having more people. Thank you so much. Please come back anytime. I'd love to talk with you about uh, the joys of ignoring crypto sometime. Have a great evening and a great weekend, sir. Thank you. We got to take a quick break. We'll be right back in just a moment with your calls at 866-997-4748. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Right now, listen, you're hearing me say it. When I tell you this is the, the political book of the year, I'm trusting you'll believe me. I wouldn't lie to you about this. You know, people always ask me, uh, when's my book coming out about how to argue Bible points with right-wing Bible thumpers? Well, one of my favorite writers has just written really the definitive the definitive collection of arguments to use to rebut right-wing talking points. I mean, you know the questions. Taxes are theft, abortions murder, and white privilege is a lie, and regulation kills jobs, and critical race theory makes you a woke transgender communist and blows your knees off. You know, and these people suck it up with Ben Shapiro or, God help us all, Prager University. Ugh. So who is on the front lines helping people of conscience, helping progressives and Democrats and moderates and liberals and just plain old anti-evil people know how to reply? Nathan Robinson, who isn't just a brilliant writer, he's a brilliant debater because he understands what debating is all about and how people on the right and left get it wrong. He is the editor of Current Affairs. You may have read his stuff in The Times and The Washington Post and New Republic and Salon. Um, He's author of the book Why You Should Be a Socialist. But his new book is something you are going to want to carry in your pocket, especially for all those family reunions, Responding to the Right. Brief replies to 25 conservative arguments. It's detailed, it's smart, it's moral, and best of all, it is highly readable. It's a blast. What a pleasure to welcome Nathan Robinson to SiriusXM. Hey, nice to be with you, John. Thank you so much. Longtime fan, first time suck up. Honestly, I, I love what you've done <laughs> here. And and I wanna I wanna tell you, I wanna praise you because you you really understand both the conservative thought machine and our conservative brothers and sisters that we are likely going to be debating. And you point out early in the book that these arguments that the right wing folks use on the surface are seemingly convincing because conservatives are comfortable having quick solutions and having uh, authorities give ready made answers for complex questions. Yeah, that's the thing. They kind of they know what they're doing, right? I mean, there is a tendency that some of us have to underestimate them, but they've really thought a lot about messaging, a lot of how about how to craft talking points, a lot about how to win debates. Even though my book obviously I think is devastating to the right-wing case, it pays tribute actually to some of the skill with which its ambassadors advance that case, right? I mean, I think that people like Ben Shapiro are quite effective at what they do, which is why we have to learn how to counter it. Yes, but of course, as you well know, it takes longer to deconstruct a lie than to spread a lie. And I know this is something you've devoted a lot of your work to over the years. 
Yes, it's true. I, I write sort of 10,000 word articles in current affairs sometimes, meticulously going through and debunking talking points. It does take a long time, which is why you're sort of at a disadvantage a lot of the time in live debates in conversations i think you have more of an advantage in writing which is why you know i wrote this out as a as a book so it, it can be it can be difficult definitely sort of one-on-one -on -one when you have a short period of time and people are tossing out things faster than you can refute them Exactly. But again, that's why I love this book, because in, in my line of work, I use humor. I tell jokes and use mm. ridicule. You are very above that in this book. This is not a snarky book. It is a, a very earnest and well thought and well researched book that respects one's conservative opponent, be they a, a loved one or a troll on social media. I, I I love your format. Each each one of your chapters has a whole bunch of quote quotations to essentially restate the central conservative argument and then you put it into your own words and respond and wow sir your gift with footnotes <laughs> is just dramatic there's a lot but, yeah there's, there's a lot of but that. you nail it you nail it i mean from the minimum wage and, and unionization i i have to ask i get the feeling you've been having this book tossing around in your head for a long time well, you know, Current Affairs now, the magazine I edit, has been running for seven, coming up on eight years. And all the time, you know, just about every week, I'm writing something that is debunking some piece of nonsense that has been said or written. And so when I came to write this, I was sort of pulling together a lot of different threads. And I was sort of tired of writing these pieces over and over every week. And I thought, well, let me just get it all in one place, right, so that I don't have to write it again. Um, how did you pick the topics you actually went for? Like, I, you know, I love that you'll take on, for example, the the Republican canard that a $15 minimum wage is just going to lead to a loss of, of low-skilled jobs. And yeah. boy, you did your homework on it. And, you know, again, yeah. abortion, so many different topics. I'm curious, what were yeah. the issues that cried out to you the most that have yeah. the most convenient, disingenuous talking points on the right? It started as being uh, responses to 100 conservative talking points. And then I kind oh of realized that... That Well, I realized there kind of weren't 100, right? I realized that a lot of conservative arguments are variations on the same thing. Uh, they're variations on, you know, fear, the fear that some kind of progressive policy is going to cause some horrible disaster, right? That's a very, very common one. And so you could go through a few different areas, you know, and so, you know, unions are going to wreck the economy. The minimum wage is going to wreck the economy. The Green New Deal is going to wreck the economy, right? So some of them are pretty common. So I just started trying to think, I, I sort of pared down. I thought, okay, well, what are the most common things I hear? I actually asked, you know, all of my friends on social media, what do you wish you had a good response to? I went back through the current affairs articles and I thought, what am I repeating myself over and over on? I looked at the things that we've had that are the most popular. Like I had this article on why the Nazis weren't socialists that has been, you know, perennially popular for years now because everyone just throws it at someone every time they right. say this point, they throw my article at them. So, <laughs> I was like, what do people really wish there was a good, solid, tight response to? Well, by the same by the same token, though, you you hold the left to a high standard. You talk about mm -hmm. something I've said for a long time that our liberal friends are often too quick to toss out the R word and, and just say racism. I, I for yeah. eight years of Obama, I resisted the urge to say it mm -hmm. because I thought it was thrown around too commonly and was lo use, losing its power. Then Trump came along and now I say it all the time. But as you point out, even when they're wrong, we can't resort to name calling. All of these arguments have to be addressed 
head on. And and you encourage yeah. people to, to read Ann Coulter and to read Dinesh do. Uh, <laughs> Sparingly, but yes, do it when you have to. Don't do it for pleasure, obviously. Um, y- yeah, you, you can call people racist, but you better be able to back it up with some arguments, right? I mean, if you're going to call Trump a racist and then someone's going to come back at you and say, what has he said that's ever, you know, you, you have to you have to have you got to be ready. Got to be ready. Got to be ready. I know. That's my job, sir. I know. I'm over, I'm ready to yeah. ask where Barack Obama was born every time I get that one. Um, yeah. You're 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 right, well, but it please go ahead. <laughs> no. No. But the, you know, your your previous caller it was interesting because he was talking about the fact that sometimes you know, we wish we had a good response, right? We see someone tossing out, in, in that case, it was Bible, you know, Bible stuff. And you, you know, you laid out for him like, okay, here's what you say. Here's the response. And so on our side, we've got to be prepared. We've got to know what you can say in response to these things. Let, let me give you one of my favorite examples that I'm so glad you tackled. And it's something that I deal with all the time, which is, uh, well, you know, the Nazis were socialists. I mean, you know, I think I like that one even more than the Confederates were Democrats. Um, The Nazis were socialists, just like, Mm -hmm. you know, the People's Democratic Republic of North Korea. They had the word socialism in their name. Now, you know, I I, I can say Hitler banned labor unions and took away their right to strike. um, But how do you address it? I thought that was a a great example. How how does one begin to fight back on that talking point? Well, of course it is. Again, it's the sort of thing that may sound superficially persuasive because as you point out, they go, oh, it's just it's right there in the name. I think you already cited one of the the best comebacks to that, which is, well, you know, North Korea has democratic in its name. Does that make it democratic? Um, but I just I go through. I think I cite actually, you know, <laughs> I've, I've actually I've read all 700 pages of Mein Kampf because um, wow. I compiled, you know, what what is it exactly that Hitler's agenda was? What did he say? he wanted to do. Uh, Most of it, as we know, is uh, an extermination program for the advancement of the Aryan race. Okay, well, compare that with the Bernie Sanders agenda in 2020, 2016. You know, Mm -hmm. the contemporary democratic socialist agenda. Let's see where the overlap is. Oh, there's no (laughs) overlap whatsoever at all. Well, that tells you pretty much all you need to know, doesn't it? Well, uh, the Nazis did support universal health care. But, you know, yeah, you're right. I mean, that's not the reason people look back on them unfavorably. <laughs> <laughs> no, I say all the time, like he, he he banned unions and banned collective bargaining, banned Hitler banned abortions for Germans. Uh, they persecuted gays. They hated immigrants. They were anti-gun control for most people, pro-nationalism, pro-militarism. I know, right? How left wing can you get? It's right. just incredible. And but the other thing is like if 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 it was the case that the Nazis did a thing and it was it was an unobjectionable thing that wouldn't thereby make that thing objectionable right so the Nazis built roads okay that doesn't make roads Nazism right the things that they did that were objectionable were the genocide we object yes. to genocide right so it's really important to be clear that we're not playing an association game where that if you can prove that Hitler did something you can discredit it right we have to because hitler wore pants okay <laughs> nazis wore pants they did just saying just say yeah yeah 
Exactly. And there, there are never good faith arguments. Um, I, I, I have to ask you about, you know, modern bigotry, because I'm guilty, sir, of, of using the F word too much and and calling people fascist or saying that movements mm-hmm. or behaviors are fascist. And one of the things mm-hmm. that I find very common is the fascist needs to demonize a powerless minority group, be they mm-hmm. undocumented immigrants or Muslims or Jews or I don't know, transgender children, a group that does not threaten the main population, the demagogue must make the population believe they're under siege by this powerless minority and then sell themselves as the hope to save you from these penniless refugees at our border. I mean, one of your one of your lies you focus, one of your talking points is the the bigotry that uh, transgender people are delusional and they're a threat. This one's fraught with a lot of peril. And I find a lot of our friends on the left care and they haven't really mastered the debate yet. That's true. That's true. I think, you know, the word fascist is useful and it's not. It's not useful in that if you if the person is just hearing it as, you know, it doesn't have any meaning beyond uh, you're bad. Right. Then you're not doing anything. But what you were saying there is there's an important if you if you can explain it, if you can justify why you're using the word and you can say, as you did just there, you know, well, what 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 do fascists do? Well, they take a powerless group, a group on the fringes. In the case of the Nazis, it was Jews. And they elevate that group and pretend that that group is the one that is in power. Right. And And if you can teach people, if you can show people how this works and the way that the propaganda works, then they can start to see. I mean, I used the word Nazi when I reviewed Matt Walsh's anti-trans documentary, Mm -hmm. uh, What is a Woman? Because I've honestly thought it was quite justified because the techniques he uses to try and portray trans people who have, you know, higher rates of pretty much every awful thing, higher rates of being bullied, harassed, abused. Um, you know, to portray them as a menace, as a threat to civilization. I mean, these are just Nazi-like propaganda techniques. Yeah, absolutely. Well, then, how do you how how do you approach this? There's a there's a a common term in debating parlance called the gish gallop, and um, mm. a lot of us give Mitt Romney credit for showing how to masterfully do this against Barack Obama in the first of their three debates in Denver back uh, in 2012, um, where you just overwhelm your opponent with so much bullshit uh, that by the time they're correcting lie number one, you've moved on to lie number 13. Steve Bannon calls this flooding the zone. But I've dealt with Ben Shapiro, which no decent person should have to do. He's he's very good at it. I mean, I don't think Ben's good at much, but he's very good at piling on these very dubious non-facts that uh, make it hard to argue against. You know, he's avoided a debate with me for years. I still oh, want I know. to get him to do it. You got you, you uh, challenged him. You you challenged him a couple times to debates, and they don't even times. respond. He won't do it. Yeah. Neither will Peterson. Jordan Peterson won't either. They Shocking. scurry away. But I'm curious how I do because um, the thing is that with the with the gish galloping, uh, with the throwing out all of these fallacies at once, it, it depends what context you're in, right? So most of the time, I'm a writer, so it doesn't it doesn't affect you when you're a writer because you can take as much time as you like to reply. It, it's hardest in your when you're in formal debate settings where you've got like a ten minute limit. Right. Yeah. And you're supposed to rebut all of the people's arguments that they, they have laid out in 10 minutes and they've thrown out too many of them. Um, but what you can do is you can say, OK, well, if you are in that context, you don't have the time to go through painstakingly as I do. Um, you could just go, OK, look, 
I don't have time to refute all of this, but here are, let's drill down what I think are the most, the main important points that they made there. Please. And so I really recommend to people trying to focus on what matters, not getting distracted, zeroing in on, well, what is the major issue that we are talking about? And, you know, go for things that that matter and discard things that are side points. Don't argue every point, argue the points that you really, really care about getting across. Can I can I throw a hypothetical at you just to show our listeners okay. how you do All that right, so adroitly in this? But well, you know, these immigrants who came to our country legally, they're fine. But these ones who are here illegally, they, they broke the rules. That, that That's it. It's very cut and dry. They broke the rules. And it's not fair to the people who follow the rules. You hear it every day. And so do I from people who consider themselves very open hearted and very aware. Yeah, well, I'd say that the rules aren't fair. And I'd say that the way that you know that the rules aren't fair is when you actually start to get to know the lives of undocumented, unauthorized immigrants in this country. And when you start to think, when you start to understand what it would mean to tear someone away from their family, from their work, from their education and send them back to a country that they may have very little connection with. Um, you know, when you say the, the rules are the rules, the rules can be deeply, deeply cruel. So we need to fix the rules. Uh, you know, we have other values beyond enforcing a bad set of rules. <laughs> <laughs> My guest is Nathaniel J. Robinson. His excellent new book, I swear to God, you have to own it. It's called Responding to the Right, Brief Replies to 25 Conservative Arguments. Um, you wrote a piece a couple years ago, like four or five years ago on currentaffairs.com, that, uh, .org, sorry, that I, that I loved called Reflections on Debating the Right, which was mm. sort of about your entree into actually debating people in person rather than, as you say, being a writer about it. And you had a really great line in it that I never forgot. You said, as everyone knows, you do not win a debate by having the best argument, but mm. by being the best debater. Style matters mm. just as much as substance. And in person, I tend to be disorganized, uncertain, and easily flustered. I prefer writing to speech. When you write, you actually get to think about what you're going to say before you say it. And I do agree, but that's an example of how the GOP and our conservative brothers and sisters, they really know that very often style matters more than substance because it's not so about much. converting the other person. It's about converting the audience, the onlookers, the people yeah. listening. Yeah, I mean, I can thrash Ben Shapiro in writing. I don't know if I would do it live because he speaks very quickly and he speaks very fluently. Um, and so I do encourage people to sort of learn how to articulate the arguments clearly, learn how to think quickly uh, on your feet, learn, you know, what people are going to say so that you don't. Because one of the problems is all these viral clips of, you know, leftists destroyed. Oftentimes, it's just a person who's trying to think through what they're going That's to it. say. And, uh, you know, if you but if you pause and if you have to sort of think about it for a while, you know, they'll just hit you with more stuff and, and you, you know, you'll drown in it. So you do have to kind of master not just the intellectual points, but also how to speak to people, how to speak persuasively. So I recommend sort of studying the art of uh, public speaking. The reason I did well in my first kind of debate with a, a conservative live uh, was in part because I had some good points and in part because I just tried to be really likable to the audience. And this guy was not likable at all. <laughs> but it's also having the succinct talking points. And again, you know, comedians have to do it as a joke. Like, if I don't get a laugh, I haven't made my point. But I think you've, you've demonstrated what we saw this week with uh, Bethany Mandel on the other side, who wrote a whole book about woke, but wasn't ready to be 
asked what the word means on live TV. And it was it, it went viral. I'm used to seeing that kind of deer in the headlights look on moral people who aren't ready for this sort of thing. She just walked right into it. Yeah, when I wrote a book about socialism, I made sure I had a definition of socialism ready in the interviews because you know <laughs> you can't. You, when sometimes when you write a whole book about something and then someone's like, "Please tell me the the," you can actually get flustered. But you 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 need to. That's why you need to think. You need to you need to have thought through what you're going to say if you're gonna if you're going to go into public settings and present yourself as an expert on some subject. Uh, you know, try and know what you're talking about (laughs) well but as you know there's this very strong feeling among many people on the left many many great progressives or democrats Mm -hmm. that debating people in the era of trump is a waste of time that they're brainwashed they're zombies you can't beat them by having the best talk look hillary clinton beat donald trump three debates Uh, you know what what difference Mm -hmm. does it make and you've always pointed out that's kind of rubbish thinking Yeah, I don't agree. I actually don't know that she did win those debates. I think people thought she won the debate because she had the best points, but she didn't necessarily have the best style. Donald Trump understands, you know, irrational emotional appeals, but he understands them. Um, Yeah, I I actually think that you can persuade people. I don't share that kind of cynicism. This is another kind of tribute that I pay to people uh, on the right is I pay them the tribute of believing that they're human enough to where maybe they could come around. In fact, my book, The Dedication of my book is to conservatives who are open to the possibility that they might be completely wrong about everything. Um, so, I, you know, and I know because I because when I write for Current Affairs, I get emails from people who say, I used to be a Ben Shapiro fan. I used to be a Jordan Peterson fan. And then I read your writing and I thought about it. And I looked at what they said and I saw they wouldn't debate you. And I saw they didn't have any responses. And I'm convinced. I, I think that you showed that they were wrong and full of it. And I'm no longer a fan of them. So <laughs> not everyone. That's like a small number of people. But, you know, as we know, in elections, small numbers of people can be the difference between uh, a fascist coming to power and a non-fascist coming to power. So it it really kind of matters, even if there's only a small segment that can be converted. And as I always tell people, it's not about swaying the other person. Very often you will not sway Mm -hmm. them. But if you do it respectfully, if you understand what their arguments are going to be beforehand, you can sway their kids. You can sway their wives. <laughs> you can sway people who are li- yeah. listening to the debate. I, I, I'm sure you agree. Don't don't mm-hmm. debate in a vacuum if you can avoid it. Try to have try to have an audience yes. if you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I'm not gonna. If I ever did get my debate with Ben Shapiro, I don't think I, he would come out of it going, you know what. Gosh, I've really been a fool this whole time. No, I, I don't know anything, do I? Uh, but I do think that hopefully, if I did it well, a number of people in the audience would go, "Wow, that Shapiro guy really—he does not actually know anything." <laughs> but it is fair to say, I mean, that progressives have a slight uh, have a tougher time on the playing field because we're going to have to have the burden of always doing good faith debate. We're going to have the burden of having to have the facts and being able to, in a civilized way, deconstruct their argument without being mean. And we're going to have to do the most irritating behavior of all um, going high when they go low. It is it is it is an inconvenient disadvantage when you can't just lie about everything, isn't Uh, it? (laughs) 
<laughs> it's annoying because he's yeah. like, man, if I could just make stuff up right now, this would be so much easier. <laughs> oh, it'd be great if I could blame everything on woke stuff. My life would be simple. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so what's next for you, sir? The book is out. Congratulations. I think you've done a great public service. What, what, where are you going to be training Thanks. your focus next? Um, actually, next time I'm doing a book on foreign policy, um, Noam Chomsky and I are actually uh, co-writing a uh, an introduction to his sort of central critique of U.S. foreign policy. Um, and then I write about everything for the for the magazine. Magazines, to, you know. And, oh, and I've also got a book. Am I allowed to swear? Sorry, I can't remember. Yeah, it's yes, encouraged. It's encouraged. Yes, sir. Yeah. I'm also writing a book called Bullshitters uh, that is about um, that is about people who are full of shit, and that's 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 not just conservatives. Um, right on. That's also like Silicon Valley people and Steven Pinker and such. Uh. <laughs> well, can I ask you about that really quick? Because I think bullshitting is a yeah. term that we need to take more seriously in the age of Trump. I think Trump is the person who really taught me that. Yeah. Bullshitting and lying are two different things. Um, lying is when you yeah. know you're telling a lie, and bullshitting is when you don't know, but you don't care if you are. You don't care. You just, whatever words come out of your mouth that are most likely to convince people. Yeah. And so I wrote an article called We Live in the Age of the Bullshitter. And it was looking at people like, you know, well, like Sam Bankman Freed, for example, and a lot of the other sort of crypto people and uh, some sort of pop historians and, and Donald Trump. And I think there is something common across a lot of people in our time. And it's, as I say, it's not just a right wing problem, but it is a problem where people can get away with just saying stuff. Exactly. <laughs> so it's about people who just say stuff without ever checking to see whether it's true. Exactly right. And it's really easy to do when you know your audience will not make you pay a price if you were wrong. Right. I, I, I ask everyone my, my go-to question, and my producer is so sick of it, that when I have to deal with our right-wing loved ones, I, I, I just say, where was Barack Obama born? And with that simple question, I can find out in 10 seconds if a person values Donald Trump's racism and lies over objective, provable fact. And mm -hmm. it saves time. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes learning that a, a really good question, that's another way to deal with this gish gallop stuff, is if you yep. boil down, like an important question and and zero in on it. Like with the debate I did with the libertarian guy, my question was, should an employer be able to fire a woman if she gets pregnant? And I knew that that question would completely throw him off because he's a libertarian. He exactly. believes that, yes, an employer should be able to. But of course, that to the audience, that sounds horrible. So he uh -huh. wouldn't say that. So so he squirmed. He just squirmed and squirmed. He wouldn't give a straight answer. They could see that he wouldn't give a straight answer. And I just kept pressing him and pressing him on this question. And that was the highlight of the debate, because if you find those questions that can really tell people a lot, you can get around the fact that they've That's just, it. you know, also thrown out this mountain of bullshit. Oh, I love it. It's like quoting Jesus to evangelicals. Watch them squirm. Uh, Nathan J. Robinson is the author and writer. The book is Responding to the Right, Brief Replies to 25 Conservative Arguments. Sir, it's a pleasure. I, I would love to have you back anytime. This platform is always oh, welcome great. to you. What's the best yes, way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with your work, sir? They can go to currentaffairs.org to read my work, or they can follow me at Nathan J. Robinson on Twitter. What a pleasure. Have a great evening, and thanks for staying up late with us. We got to hit a break. Thank you. We'll be back in just a moment with your calls at 866-997-4748. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is SiriusXM Progress. I'm Fugelsang. We're at 866-997-4748. Rich in Indiana, thank you for your patience on hold. Oh, dude, you're so welcome. Thank you very much. I really thank love you. that conversation that you and Nathan were having. And I'm going to shift gears because there's so little time left. Please, go ahead. Um, you may remember a little poem that I sent. Chris would remember it. I sent it as a, uh, a text to the email. And uh, I title it, um, Collaborationist Vichy. <laughs> and it's uh, about Nazi. Okay, and well, I, I, I guess it's, that. It cites, it cites uh, a statement from Ilya Ehrenberg that uh, is sort of used to bookend the thing. Okay. It begins, and, and it's, in a, it's in just a, it's not a rhyming style. Okay. The Nazi is your moral enemy. The Nazi is a monster. It must not persist. As it is offered deference, it assumes power to violate the rights of those used as scapegoats to unite the chauvinist nationalism to favor the Nazi. Wipe them out. Word. Right on. I was just in a fit of peak. What's <laughs> that? It boiled out of me. You know, I, I just had this one little spot out of post-it note, and I had to get it down. <laughs> I love it. Chris just forwarded your poem over to me. Uh, the Nazi is your moral enemy, and uh, I yeah. completely, completely agree. And you know what you call a person who's not a Nazi but works with the Nazis? You call that person a Nazi. A quizzling. A quizzling. No, I, I, go ahead. You can use the N-word. You can use the N-word. You oh, know. I, I remember, but remember the, the very first word in all of that. It's collaboration-ist. That's what the Vichy French yep. were. They were collaboration-ists. And be willing to recognize that, that little chunk of language there. That's a, that's a beautifully important thing to, to wake yourself up with. Boom. I All completely right, agree. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. Have a great You're evening. Welcome. 866-997-4748. Mitch in Kent State. How are you, sir? Thank you, John. Appreciate it. Uh, as your, hey, does your wife appreciate that we turned you into a Kendrick Lamar fan? Because that's the... <laughs> listen, I, I haven't accomplished much this week, but I'm I'm putting that on my yeah, tombstone. You can, you, can, you can chalk that one up, yeah. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Great. Yeah, and my kids are proud of me, too, by the way. So I mentioned it to them, and... Uh, yeah, they couldn't get over it either. So, John, I'm evolving. I'm you evolving. listening to Kendrick Lamar means I'm one step closer I, to heaven. So that's good. What, I Chris? Heard that, I heard that Mitch just outfitted the family minivan with hydraulics. That's what I heard. <laughs> you low-riding punk. Yeah, my, my, my 1984 Ford, Ford Focus is great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, John, a couple of birthdays of me real quick. Uh, the late, great Nat King Cole also today. Uh, my God. Yes, I know. He's on my list. 
Yes. Too young, too young. I remember, I remember when he died in 65, my, my father was just devastated. That man's voice, just, uh, just you know. Yeah, but you know what? A great piano player, too. We don't talk enough about, about Nat King Cole and the Nat King Cole trio. People need to listen yeah. to some of his instrumental stuff because his piano playing is as delicate and beautiful as his singing voice. Yeah, for sure. And uh, also John Sebastian. Uh, I saw John him. Sebastian. Yeah, he played at the university a few years ago. He was, he was losing his voice at the time. I, I don't think he can sing anymore. What a great guy, great harmonica player, great singer. Oh, yeah. And, you know, his yeah. dreams was his ticket out. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, he played harmonica on uh, Deja Vu. Uh, yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. He sings the Welcome Back Cotter song. He wrote it. He's great. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, we saw him also uh, here at the university. Uh, the other one was, oh, my God, Johnny Mathis had the first... Greatest Hits album in 1957, eight, uh, the first Greatest Hits album, first collection of Greatest Hits on an album uh, for John. I didn't know. Uh, any, I, you know, for that, any. That was the first, the first Greatest Hits album this date in 1958, right? Yeah, yeah, there 65 years yeah. ago today, right? Yes. Unbelievable, yeah. And, look and by the way, that album stayed on the chart for nine years, oh. and, and it was Dark Side of the Moon broke the record. Wow, wow. Uh, you talk about the longevity. Unbelievable. Uh, John, my cousin, I have a cousin who lives in uh, Madison, and uh, she sent me a, a, a magazine, or it's a newspaper article from the paper up there. One of the biggest elections going on up there for all you people who live in Wisconsin. I guess we've got some judgeships coming up there. Uh, judge, it's a, it's a 10-year term, I guess, and mm-hmm. uh, very important uh, to get this. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't have the name in front of me, but... Uh, Devastating effect. If this other guy who was appointed by uh, you have a Republican governor up there, right? He was appointed by him. I guess he's just tearing everything apart as far as rights and. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, Wisconsin is just always in this incredible biblical death struggle of inc- wonderful progressives and then these soulless right wingers. It's incredible. Yeah, how uh, truly purple that state is. Exactly. Well, we used to be. Yeah. Uh, hmm. Another thing, John. Uh, as far as if he is indicted. Uh, is that you think it provides an incentive for his uh, followers, or is it uh, devastating for his followers? I mean, one more time, uh, one more time, Mitch. I did. You dropped out for a second. If, if Trump is indicted, you see it as a as a devastation. Oh, it's, for his no, followers? it's it's. I mean, it, his yeah. followers will care. Sure, they'll be they'll yeah. be upset, and they will yeah. donate money to him. And there's people who are on the fence about him. But once right. it looks like the deep state and those woke liberals are trying to take away our champion, that's what he's selling. I am your retribution. Stephen yeah. Miller taught him how to say the word retribution. It's four syllables. It's good for him. So that's what it's going to be. He's going to use this to sell his brand. And what's his brand? Victimhood and revenge. But yeah, you know, I just you know, Nixon had a twenty three percent approval rating when he was when he was you know taken out of office. Yeah, I know, but Nixon amazing. didn't. Have, if if Nixon had Fox News, he wouldn't no, have left right. office. Right, right. He would have told Barry Goldwater to go back to the Senate. Thank you, Mitch. <laughs> this is SiriusXM. I'm John Fugel saying peace. <laughs> 